I've entitled this talk tonight, Warning and Welcome. Um, I'm not going to go through and explain in detail every single verse that I just read, but I do want to focus you in tonight on two groups of people, uh, the women who are lamenting and weeping for Jesus and the thieves on the cross, namely the thief that is granted paradise by Jesus on the cross. So really looking at the, the women and the thief on the cross. I think Luke is trying to show us a contrast here between these women and this thief. Really, my interest in this passage was peaked about six months ago. As many of you know, our Bible studies are going through the book of Hosea. Many of you are going through Hosea. And in preparation to, to um, work on those lessons and, and teach those lessons, uh, I came to Hosea 9 and 10 and realize that in Hosea 9 and 10, God warns the northern kingdom Israel through His prophet Hosea. He warns them, and He, he says a couple of different things to them. And in Luke 23, on the way to the cross, Jesus comes across these weeping women, and He refers back to Hosea 9 and 10 in warning them as well. So the words of Hosea or not just on our minds uh, the last number of months, they were on Jesus' mind on His way to the cross. And that was fascinating to me, and so I wanted to look deeper into the connection there. And then, as we look at Luke 23 and see Jesus warning these ladies, which would have been shocking to the audience of that time, women of Jerusalem were certainly right with God, not so. That would have been shocking in and of itself that Jesus was warning them. But then he evidently welcomes a most despicable man in that day and age. He welcomes and tells a criminal on a cross that he will be with him in paradise. Both of these things are shocking. And I just wanted to explore them a little bit with you tonight. And um, my prayer is that you would see the beauty of the mercy of Jesus welcoming sinners to himself. Again, Jesus cites both passages in Hosea 9 and the Hosea 10 passage. He cites them on the way to the cross. He warns the weeping women of Jerusalem about the same kind of judgment that he warned the northern kingdom of back in Hosea 9 and 10. And then he shockingly shows mercy to a thief who's being executed next to him. Now, to help understand this all the more, you've got to understand a little bit more about the book of Luke. The book of Luke is a book that details certain aspects of Jesus' life and ministry to make a point. Luke ordered these, the physician Luke ordered these in a way that would convince his reader, Theophilus, that these things were to be held onto and grasped and believed. And so Luke lays out this account. It's not a biography of Jesus. The Gospels are not biographies of Jesus. The Gospels are selected accounts of Jesus' life which are put down in order to make one big point. And the big point in Luke is that Jesus, the Son of Man, came to seek and save not the righteous ones. He came to seek and save those who were lost. Now again, 
You might have grown up in church and you think, yeah, I, I know that. It's shocking. God did not come to reward the righteous. He came to earth to save the unrighteous, to save sinners. And Luke shows this all throughout his book. You, you can stay there in Luke 23, and I'm just going to remind you of these realities in Luke for a bit. In Luke 1, 51 to 53, Mary's told she's going to have a child and he's going to be the king of the Jews. He's going to be the Messiah. And so Mary breaks out into this song, this prayer of praise to God. And it sounds a lot like the prayer that Hannah prayed hundreds of years before when she found out she was going to have a child. And when Hannah prays that, it's in the book of 1 Samuel, it's showing that the powerful strong ones of the earth who, who look like they get everything and everything works for them, they're the ones that are going to be humbled and God is going to raise up the humble ones. And so Hannah prays that, the barren Hannah who now is going to have a child praises God for looking upon the humble one and exalting her. Well, Mary prays the same prayer when she finds out she's going to have a child she says this, he, God, has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. She prays that in Luke chapter 1, around the time of the birth of her son. And all throughout the rest of Luke, you're going to see that dynamic played out. The proud, self-righteous, even the wealthy proud are brought low and the poor and despicable and needy and sinners are raised up. You're going to see that all throughout Luke. In Luke 5, he starts calling his first disciples and he calls fishermen at the beginning. Then in Luke 5, he heals a leper. He gives life to the leper's body. He heals a paralytic, gives life to his legs. And then we learn that the scribes and Pharisees, the proud ones, start to criticize him. And then in Luke 5, he goes and calls not a fisherman to himself. I mean, that was pretty low. He calls a tax collector to come and be his follower. Luke is telling a story here. The humble are raised up. The mighty are brought low. Fast forward. There, there's lots more in Luke, but we've we can't be here till Sunday morning. Um, Luke 15, a younger prodigal son, a younger sinner who made a number of poor decisions and really didn't even care that his dad was alive anymore, one of the inheritance, left the family to go and squander it in the world. That young prodigal is welcomed home and the self-righteous older brother, Luke 15, 25 says, came near to the house and heard the singing and the dancing that was going on from when the younger brother came home. I mean, what a picture that is. The sinner comes home and a party is thrown. Luke 15 tells us that there's celebrating in heaven over one sinner who repents. And in that parable, the Lord tells the story of the prodigal coming home and there is a celebration, there's a party. And notice the older righteous brother who always did right comes near to the house, 
but not inside the house. You think he's an insider, but he's actually an outsider. Outsider looking in on the celebration. This is the story of Luke. Luke 16, a formerly rich man dies and no longer is rich, and the poor beggar who sat at his gate is now at the side of Abraham. A great reversal. Luke 18, 11 through 14, a Pharisee's praying in the temple. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, like this tax collector. Again, Luke loves to show that the tax collectors can be redeemed. And then the tax collector is the second man, and he's beating his breast, admitting the fact that he's a sinner, despicable in the eyes of God. And Jesus says, this is the one that went home innocent, that went home righteous, the tax collector. Again, the one you think is the insider is actually the outsider. And the one you think is the outsider is actually the insider. Luke 18 a rich young ruler comes. Now, certainly, the wealthy have been blessed by God. So the rich young ruler comes and asks Jesus, what must I do to obtain eternal life? Thinking that he could do something. I mean, he's always been the bright kid, the one that could do anything. What should I do to earn eternal life? And at the end of it, he goes away sad because Jesus presses him on what he loves most, his money. Give everything to the poor. He wouldn't do that. There's always something with those that appear to be insiders but are actually outsiders. There's always something that they will not let go of in Luke. Money, self-righteousness, pride. There's always something with this man, it's his money. And then Jesus leaves him after a brief discussion with his disciples He goes and he shows mercy to a poor man. So rich young ruler, give all your money to the poor. Won't do it. Then Jesus goes and shows mercy to a poor man. Again, Luke is constantly contrasting the insiders and the outsiders. Luke 19, Jesus goes to the town of another tax collector. And remember I told you that The theme of Luke is the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That's actually taken from the account of Zacchaeus at the end of that account. And it says the Son of Man came to look for the lost. The story starts with Zacchaeus, the lost one, looking for Jesus. Goes, climbs up, looks for him, and Jesus comes and he looks up and Jesus calls him by name. Evidently, Jesus knows who he's looking for. Jesus calls him by name and says that he's going to go to Zacchaeus' house, which would have been scandalous. And Zacchaeus, demonstrating a new life to come, repents of sin and says that his money is now in the hands of the Lord and in the hands of the poor. Remember the rich young ruler who wouldn't give it to the poor? But now you've got an outsider, a tax collector, who now wants to give to the poor. So the outsider becomes the insider. And in that story... People see this and they grumble about it. Why? Because Jesus is going to dine with a sinner. But remember Luke 5, that's exactly who he came for. He came for the sinners, not the ones that thought they were without sin. 
So this is, it's not surprising that when Jesus comes to the cross, this theme of outsiders and insiders continues. It's been continuing all through the Gospel of Luke. And so in verses 26 to 31, we see the warning to the insiders, and I use quotation marks there, because they are actually the outsiders. But to Luke's early readers, to the people watching that day, what was going on with Jesus on the way to the cross, these ladies would have been thought of as the insiders. The Jews of Jerusalem who followed all the Pharisees' traditions, who followed the law, made more laws to ensure that they didn't break any laws, they were the ones that were full of self-righteousness, on the outside looking very moral, but on the inside corrupt. All throughout the Gospels, you hear of these type of people rejecting Jesus, rejecting Jesus. They don't need him. They do enough already. They're right. Everybody else is wrong. They'll follow Jesus as long as he does miracles that they like and give them food when they want it. But when he presses them to repentance and self-denial, no, no, this isn't our guy. So in 26 to 31, you see the warning <coughs> to the insiders. 26, and again, I'm not going to go into Simon of Cyrene. I'm not going to go on the people sco- to, uh, in detail about the people scoffing and mocking him. That'll be for another time. I just want to highlight these ladies and then later the thief. Verse 26, and as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross. Now, I said I wouldn't, but I can't resist. Luke is the one in chapter 9 that says, if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. Now you've got someone taking, literally taking the cross of Christ. You can see the book of Acts. Simon actually ended up becoming a follower of Jesus. Okay, you can look on that on your own, all right? Laid him on the cross, laid on the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. He's referring back again to Hosea chapter 9. In Hosea 9, he was warning the people saying, listen, if you don't repent and forsake everything you trust in and come to me, then you're going to be judged. God has only been good to the people of the northern kingdom, the people of Israel. He's only been good to them, but they are constantly trying to find their security in idols, in political alliances, and therefore they are not trusting in God to save them. And he warns them, you can't do that. There will be a day when another invading army comes and not only kills you, but they kill your children. There are consequences to rejecting God. And God in Hosea is pictured as the faithful husband and they the unfaithful bride. You will not succeed rejecting God. And so Jesus now, hundreds of years later, on the way to the cross, refers back to Hosea and says to these women of Jerusalem, who probably were a lot like the northern kingdom of Israel, going through the motions of worship, but their heart really was not God's. They 
were not the ones who repented and asked Jesus Christ for mercy. They're the daughters of Jerusalem. And all throughout the book of Luke, Jerusalem comes up over and over again. Jesus has a troubled relationship with Jerusalem. That should be his home. It should be where he's adored most. But the citizens of Jerusalem of that day, most of them, not all of them, most of them do not want him as their savior if it's on his terms. If it's on their terms, they'll take him. If it's on his terms, what he calls for, no thank you. So Jesus has this troubled relationship with Jerusalem. That's why he calls them daughters of Jerusalem. Don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming. There's a day of judgment coming, ladies, when they will say, blessed are the barren in the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Now he's saying there's going to be a day of judgment where the people who wanted to have, ch- to have children but weren't able to and never had children, people are going to say, hey, lucky you didn't have children because at least they're not destroyed. This is strong language. From Jesus. Don't weep for me. There can be so much sentimentality when it comes to Jesus on the cross, can't there be? Oh, who, how could he take that and poor Jesus? And people can feel sorry for him. Feeling sorry for Jesus doesn't mean you're right with him. Going to him for mercy and saying, I belong in your place. I've rebelled against God. Those are the ones that belong to him. So these ladies have a certain sentimentality over Jesus going to the cross. But they're just like the others in Jerusalem who haven't come to him for salvation. Then they'll begin to say to the mountains, he continues in this prophetic judgment language, and he quotes now Hosea 10. They will begin to say the mountains fall on us and the hills cover us. There's debate here as to whether this is people saying, I'd just rather die than have any more judgment from God. Or maybe it's just them being so desperate, them saying, it'd be better if these mountains were on top of us so that we could hide from the wrath of God. There's debate there. But either way, they are scared of the judgment of God. The Bible says in Revelation 6 that this will one day happen to people on this earth crying out to the mountains to fall on us, to hills to cover us from the wrath of the Lamb. And Jesus says, for if they do these things when the wood is green, I mean the green, the, the, the wood's not ideal for burning, but it's still going to burn. But one day later it's going to be dry. How much more will that be judgment? So he's saying, beware of judgment, ladies, who have not Come to me for salvation. You think you're insiders. You have not come to me for mercy. This is a warning to the insiders. Just to kind of highlight briefly Jesus' difficulty with Jerusalem. Luke 13, listen to this. Luke 13, 34. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, 
How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. There's the reason these ladies aren't his, the ladies he's referring to. They're just like the others who rejected the prophets. Again, think of the people rejecting Hosea's message. Hosea warning them and inviting them to seek the Lord and to admit their sin before the Lord, but they won't have it. Hosea doesn't end with people repenting. Hopefully I'm not ruining the ending for you, those of you in the Hosea Bible study. It ends with God telling them what repentance looks like, but they don't end up repenting. And that's why Jesus can say, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. The ultimate example of that is them rejecting Christ, the Son of God that was sent. God's been sending prophets. Now he sends the prophet, capital P, capital P, and they reject him. How often would I have gathered your children? Hear the judgment language in Hosea and in Luke 23. Your children are going to die because of what you're doing. And he's saying, I would have gathered you and your children in. I've been offering you salvation as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. They would not trust in Jesus Christ. Behold, your house is forsaken. The prophecy about the temple being destroyed, which it was not long after this. And then in Luke 19, and you have to know this about Jesus. He never overreacts to sin. God never overreacts in the Bible. How can God be so harsh? God never overreacts to sin. The scandal is, how can he be so patient with sinners? How can he endure it so long? How come he hasn't doled out his justice now? Jesus, Luke 19, 41, and when he drew near, he's coming into Jerusalem again, and saw the city he wept over it. God does not take joy or pleasure in the death of the wicked. Here, God in human form weeps over the coming death of the wicked. He weeps over it. So when Jesus warns these ladies, don't think, oh, Jesus is so harsh. No, the harsh ones are them. Looking at the one who was sent to them, the son that's only done Jerusalem good, that's only taught them rightly, that's only cared for their sick, cared for their paralyzed, cared for their demon-possessed, and they reject him. This is Jesus' warning to the insiders. And then, shockingly, we learn of a welcome to another outsider, outsider in quotes, because by the end of the story, he is very much an insider, isn't he? The welcome to the outsider, verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. So Jesus in the middle, two criminals on either side of him, 
And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I believe that's Jesus speaking to the ones executing him, speaking to the Father about them. And they cast lots, the ones executing him, to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying he saved others, let him save himself. If he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. It's really interesting In the Gospels, you don't hear a lot about the physical abuse that Jesus received. It is mentioned, but what is more put on display by Mark and Luke is the mocking that he received, the words of disdain. It reminds us a lot of the Old Testament prophecies of things like Psalm 2, where he was going to be mocked and rejected. So they're mocking him. They're scoffing. If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now verse 38, there was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. Verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. So the authorities of the day, the Roman centurions are executing him. The religious leaders of the day are scoffing at him, the Jews. So Romans killing him, the Jews put them up to it, and they're, they're scoffing at Jesus, mocking Jesus. And then this criminal who's dying, who in the world is he to mouth off, but yet he does. They both do at the beginning. He's also joining in the mocking. One of the criminals who were hanged, at, hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? Now, this man is going to start to get things right. Verse 40, when he asks this question to the other criminal, he would have been saying it past Jesus, to the other criminal, so yelling from two crosses away. Yelling from two crosses away, he reminds this man that this man should fear God, fear the judgment of God. God himself, the one hanging on the middle cross, just told some ladies about that future judgment, and now there's someone else talking about future judgment. The one thief yelling two crosses down to the other thief saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? Hey, you might be making fun of this guy over here in the middle, but you're not the most righteous person in the group either. You should be afraid of God's judgment. And he's right. You know who should be afraid of God's judgment? Every single human who's ever lived. Because we've all fallen short of his glory. We've all sinned against him. And then this man gets something else right in verse 41. What he gets right is that he, both of them, deserve judgment. So it's not just that every person should understand they are going to get judgment from God, but this man knows he deserves it. And we indeed justly, verse 41, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. We deserve judgment. 
to die this way. We deserve the judgment of God. And he gets something else right at the end of 41. What he gets right is that Jesus doesn't deserve this judgment. Now, this is interesting. We don't know what this criminal knows. But so many around the time of Jesus' trial to now on the cross think of him as guilty, as a blasphemer. So many think of him as someone who is claiming to be God but wasn't. Someone who's blaspheming, therefore. Someone who's lying about the temple, sinning against the temple. That's what the crowd started to think about Jesus. So they thought of him on the cross as he deserves that. How in the world did this guy know that he didn't? We don't know. Who tipped him off? But he's right. Jesus doesn't deserve the judgment. This man has done nothing wrong. And then he gets something else right. He knows what to do. Verse 42, and he said to Jesus, so yelling two crosses down to this man, you should be afraid. You deserve God's judgment. We deserve God's judgment. This man doesn't deserve God's judgment. And then he probably speaks softer because Jesus is closer and says, Jesus, God saves. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Why in the world does this man think Jesus is going to come into his kingdom? He's about to die. Why in the world does this man think that Jesus' story doesn't end here? I don't know. But he doesn't think Jesus' story ends here. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Verse 43, and Jesus, he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. That's more than the guy asked for. This is a thief telling someone who's going to become king, hey, (laughs) on that day, sometime in the future, just Don't forget about little old me. I mean, maybe (laughs) throw me a bone here or there. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. In the future, look on me with favor somehow. Jesus says today. The future is closer than you think. Today you'll be with me, not in my kingdom. Why doesn't Jesus say today you'll be with me in my kingdom? Jesus is always talking about the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. He's always talking about the kingdom, but he doesn't match the guy's word about kingdom. The guy says, remember me when you come to your kingdom. Jesus doesn't say, I'll remember you today in my kingdom. He says, today you'll be with me in paradise. The Greek word for garden. Why doesn't he say kingdom? He says paradise. Before I give you the answer, I want to remind you of Hosea 10. Remember those two judgment passages, Hosea 9, Hosea 10? People are going to want the hills, the mountains to fall on them. After that, God makes an offer of salvation 
to the northern kingdom. He says this in Hosea 10:12, it is time to seek the Lord so that he may come and rain, R-A-I-N, righteousness on you. Now, those of you studying Hosea, you know this. The people want prosperity financially. They want children, which was, which was a blessing. They want their crops to grow. They want rain. They want physical abundance. They want security. That's what they want. And God says to them, if you come back, I will rain on you. People in the Old Testament loved rain. We love rain. Why? Because this earth is cursed. If it doesn't rain, food doesn't grow. We don't eat. We go hungry. So rain is important now. It was definitely important then. Rain is such a big deal. And when he says, you come seek me, I will rain not crops, not wheat, not children. I will rain righteousness on you. The thing the northern kingdom of Israel needed most in the time of Hosea was righteousness, not food. Righteousness, not security. And so God says, when you return to me, I will declare you righteous. I will rain righteousness on you. What a great word picture. Rain, life, garden, plant, water, growth, fruit, food. That's garden language. That's Eden language. I told you this a million times. Here's a million and one. This is one story. The story about God dwelling with his people. God creating an earth, creating an environment, a garden with Adam and Eve where he fellowshiped with them, gave them life, There was a tree of life that they ate from. They had life. And then they sinned. And then God promised that the earth would be cursed and now death would reign. You've been eating fruit from trees. Now as you try to grow trees, you're going to have thistles and thorns. This is the curse that came because of sin. So God created a garden, created a world in which there was a garden there. In the middle of that garden, in that garden was Eden. God had communion and fellowship with his people in Eden. Then they sinned against him. They rejected him. And God promised that while the earth would be cursed, that wasn't going to be the end of the story. Because here's what you need to know about God. He is just but he's shockingly merciful too. And so he said there's going to be a curse. But he said one is going to come from the woman. Another child is going to come from the woman. Evidently, while death reigns on the earth and childbearing will be difficult, God is still good and she'll still have children. There's still a hint of life in this curse. She'll have children, and one of her children one day will crush the head of the serpent. One of her children will destroy death. And so Adam names Eve. Adam did not name Eve before they sinned. She was woman because she came out of man. But now when God promises 
that Eve, even in a cursed world where death will reign, she will have life come from her, and that life will overcome the death once and for all one day. So Adam names her the mother of the living. Adam believed God. Adam believed in the grace of God. He named his wife accordingly. Eve, the mother of the living. What happens after this couple is expelled from the presence of God, expelled from the place where they enjoyed fellowship with God? They go out into the world, and you see from Genesis 3 on to Revelation chapter 20, you see sin, you see rape, you see incest, you see abuse, you see stealing, you see theft, you see drought, you see famine, you see miscarriages, you see barrenness, you see diseases, and sprinkled all throughout there, you see things like a temple with agricultural features as part of the decoration. And you hear of God blessing his wayward people with some rain. And you see a man named Joseph. He goes to Egypt and there's a famine, but God gives seven years of abundance. So in the death, in the drought, in the barrenness, in the dryness, you still have some rain sometimes and some hints of Eden, just hints of Eden. You see people having children. So death is covering everything, but there's signs of life all throughout. And then Jesus comes, and what does he start doing? He starts healing people. He starts raising the dead. And then this criminal on a cross says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he says, you'll be with me today in the garden. This is Jesus referring back to Eden, referring back to a time when a man and his wife walked with God in sweet fellowship without sin. And that's what Jesus promises this man. And this man does not deserve that. In that way, this man is just like you and I. We do not deserve Eden. We do not deserve the fulfillment of Eden in Revelation 21, 22, the new heavens, the new earth. We do not deserve the new heavens, the new earth, but that's where we are citizens. We are citizens of that land. Why? Because we have come to Christ for mercy, and he said, today you'll be with me in the garden, in the place of my dwelling. You'll be home. You'll be in the place of life. That's why there's so much water and tree language given to heaven. It's connecting you to the way it was before, although now better, because now we won't just worship God as God, we'll worship the lamb who was slain for us. Heaven's better than Eden. So a sinner comes to Jesus for mercy and he's promised Eden with God, paradise with God. Today he'll be with me in paradise. Revelation 21 says that the dwelling place of God is now with man. When the new heavens and new earth come, it'll be known as the place where God dwells with man again. And then Revelation 22 says they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. So while under a curse, Adam still hoped in the grace of God, in the promise of God, 
and named his wife Eve accordingly. After the curse is destroyed one day, in the future, God will put his name on us, indicating that we are always his and will have fellowship with him without any sin. The Bible is full of these surprises. These women were supposed to be the insiders, but Jesus talks to them as if they should be warned because they're outsiders. This thief on the cross was certainly an outsider, but Jesus welcomes him in as an insider. That's why Paul says in Romans 4 verse 5, the one who does not work, the one who does not try to earn their salvation, try to be good enough for heaven, the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, declares righteous the ungodly. That's a shock right there. So if we believe in the one who declares righteous, not the righteous, but declares righteous the ungodly, that faith will be given to us as righteousness. So here's the shock. God declares righteous unrighteous people. The ones that think they're righteous and don't need God, they actually aren't. That's why he declares them unrighteous. But God justifies the ungodly. Paradise is for sinners. Paradise is for sinners who go to Jesus for mercy and he welcomes them home. So what do you do? <laughs> what do we do? Let me just ask this question. Some of you might have grown up in Bible teaching homes, Christian homes, Bible teaching churches, but you've never gone to Jesus as a thief on a cross, never gone to Jesus as a, as a despicable sinner, you spend most of your days thinking of yourself as just better than all those people on the news. I mean, look at what they do. Look at what they do. Oh, look at what they do. This country is so horrible. Look at what they do. Look at what they do. Have you ever said, Jesus, look at what I've done. Will you have mercy on me? And if you have, you'll be with him in paradise. Jesus saves those who go to him for mercy, not those who think they don't need mercy. So, it doesn't matter what family you're born in, doesn't matter how long you've studied the Bible, the question is, have you gone to Jesus for mercy? And if you have, there's nothing to earn. Jesus didn't tell the thief, listen, buddy, I'm going to get you off of here. I'm going to ask some of my disciples. When no one's looking, they're going to take you off the cross. You go and you show me a good few months, and then I'll welcome you. It is so amazing that Jesus welcomed this man into heaven that day. Who knows what he would have done in his past? Who knows why he was there? But Jesus welcomes him into heaven. This is our story, isn't it? Jesus welcomes sinners 
to fellowship with him. He forgives their sin. He changes them. He brings them home. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for the fact that those of us who've trusted in you have a home, a future, an Eden, a paradise. God, Father, thank you that you are just and thank you that you are merciful. You do everything right. You do all things well. And we consider it a privilege to be your sons and daughters. I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.